I'm Chris Cash. And I'm Archie Brown. And for this episode of the China Research Group Talks on China podcast, we are delighted to be joined by Rashid Griffith. Rashid is a non-resident senior fellow with the Asia and Latin America program at the Inter-American Dialogue. He's also the head of operations at Merkel Hedge, a Canadian financial technology and proprietary trading firm focused on high-frequency trading strategies and cryptocurrency markets. He has previously worked in the finance industry in Southeast Asia, and his policy research focuses on China's geoeconomic and financial engagement with the Caribbean, which he's written on extensively for publications including The Diplomat and Lawfare. Rashid is also the host of the China in the Caribbean podcast, which I would highly recommend listening to and will include a link to in the podcast notes. Thanks, Chris. Hi, Rashid, and thanks so much for joining us today. So we were particularly interested in talking to you after seeing how outspoken you'd been about the kind of frenzied coverage in the UK of the so-called China colonization of the Commonwealth. This is a narrative that was mainly triggered after Barbados bid to replace the Queen as head of state last autumn, but a variety of other developments also factored in, such as the head of MI6 warning about debt traps and data traps, and British newspapers reporting that there had been 685 billion of lending across 43 Commonwealth countries in the last 15 years. So I guess I wanted to start off by asking what this narrative gets wrong. And based on your position and your knowledge about Barbados, what do you think a better narrative might be? Yeah, so the China colonization narrative is, I think, a very substantial misframing of what's happening. And this was really kicked off in late 2020 when the Barbadian governor general at the time announced that the country is going to remove the Queen of England as the head of state. And I mean, a lot of the narrative really starts from the UK. I think it was the chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee, uh, Tom Tickentat, who really kind of pushed that narrative out uh, quite early. The problem there is there is this misunderstanding, as I mentioned, about the intentions of Barbados. And you have to be clear on that. So the Queen of England was the head of state for 67 countries when she became the queen, 1967, I believe, or something like that, 53. And since then, 52 countries became republics, Barbados being the 53rd. There was no narrative about China pushing those countries to become republics. They became republics because they had their own internal reasons. They wanted to have a independent, fully independent, even symbolically independent country. The idea that a, a monarch who is thousands of miles away should be the head of your country was, you know, outdated. And for many countries that are still having the realms, there are still Commonwealth realms. So the Queen is still head of state, only 14, eight of which are in the Caribbean, mind you. A lot of that is because they can't get the amendment passed in their own domestic constitutions. Oftentimes, it's an opposition versus government policy. So the opposition won't vote to give the government that, quote, win for the, for the country. So you have those issues. Or sometimes they have to do a referendum and the government doesn't want to do a referendum. It happens that Barbados, who has been discussing this change for long before I was alive, actually, finally was able to do it because the current prime minister, Mia Mali, she has all the seats in parliament. So there's no need for opposition vote. She proposed the amendment and it was done. That was not possible years ago when there was very contentious parliamentary votes. The same in other countries. And again, because this was an issue being discussed in the country for, again, decades, it is very odd, very strange, actually, that the 
a UK MP or any kind of UK government or a UK press would frame it as a China issue. Again, given that there are, even if you want to be glib, there are reasons why a small black nation will not want the Queen of England as the head of state that are not China related. And because you frame it as a China question or a China problem, that ignited a lot of resentment in the country and in the Caribbean and in many other places. I mean, even in other UK press and so on. Like this was not the correct narrative to go through. Now, a better narrative should be a very obvious one. It's not the first time a realm has become a republic in, you know, many, many years. There are already three Caribbean countries, for example, that are republics, Dominica, Trinidad, Guyana. And again, there are 52, 51 other countries in the world that became republics while the Queen of England has been on the throne. So the narrative was already known. But for some reason, in this attempt, because of the political skills of the current domestic interests of the UK, this China narrative came up. And I think that was a, a severe misstep. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much. I think that's the crucial part, isn't it? Right these kind of narratives miss out a lot of the autonomy of the recipient nations of Chinese lending. And in Barbados's case, it's autonomy to actually change its head of state. Despite the misleading nature of, of narratives such as the colonization one, am I right in saying that there has been an uptick in Chinese investment in Barbados? It's still a relatively small proportion of the overall public debt relative to other creditors. But I think Barbados is trying to secure funding from China for sewage works and roads. So what would you say is driving those deeper trade investments relationships with Barbados? And what do you think the incentives are for Barbados? Very often it is misconstrued that Chinese money flows into a country. The reality is that money is pulled into a country more often so. So the Barbados government, like many other governments, have these project proposals that they want funding for. It happens that Chinese SOEs agree and are willing to give the funding. So it's not simply that money's flowing in. It's like, well, why Caribbean governments are, again, many other governments, not only Caribbean, also European governments, also Latin American governments, African governments, Southeast Asian governments, Middle Eastern governments, you know, you go, go, go down the line. Why do these governments want to get funding from Chinese institutions? Well, because they are willing to lend at terms that the government's like. You know, it's not that, I guess, a, a big reason. It's a very small commercial reason. And it's not necessarily that there's Chinese interests in the Caribbean, that Caribbean has interest in Chinese money. So there's a slight difference in that frame again, because these governments decide upon the projects and then they go and search for funding. And it just, just happens that these Chinese are willing to provide funding in ways that the governments want. That could or could not be a good thing, but the reality is that it's not China pushing the money in. And to, to just take a step back and, and look at things from, from China's perspective um, and the perspective of Chinese companies and SOEs, um, as you just mentioned, if, if we can discuss their bottom lines, what is the major attraction of the Caribbean uh, for these Chinese entities? I think you'd probably agree that it's a, a relatively fragmented and small market in the, the, the Caribbean across the board. Uh, and I think there are 19 countries that are a part of the BRI in the, the Caribbean um, and perhaps not a region that's as rich in natural resources as, as say, some African countries. So what are, what, what is Beijing and, and its individual actors um, looking to get out of its investments in the region? Money. To look, to look to get money. 
right? So Chinese SOEs, for better or worse, operate as commercial companies. They want to compete against other companies and they compete against other SOEs as well. They have their, you know, fairly, I guess, secure understanding of macro prudential policies in China, sure, but they are still companies and they go and seek the world, you know, go in the world to seek different projects and see if they can, you know, persuade convince other sovereign nations or just actually just other corporate developers because not actually governments all the time taking money is via these corporate entities to say, hey, we can build this. We can provide money. We want to get a profit. It is almost like a bare metal capitalist activity and not always some, you know, grand geopolitics strategy. I think it's too often to read something as geopolitics when a very commercial reading will do. So uh, in the Caribbean, it's not necessarily that China when I say China, I guess what you mean by that is probably state council has an interest in the Caribbean. Um, I'm sure they have an interest in just the world in general. Is the case that some SOEs have these carve ups when they say, oh, we have to target the Americas. Who's in the Americas? Caribbean countries, Latin American countries, Central American countries, Canada, it's all the Americas. And they carve out these different regions and they go base their headquarters. For example, the um, China Harbor Engineering Corporation has the HQ in Jamaica now the HQ and other countries as well. And they go and seek deals to get money. Um, and it happens that they have a lot of financing in good terms, as I said before, that are attractive to governments that are not in the best fiscal prudential standing by the Caribbean government. Yeah, again, that's really interesting to hear from from somebody like you, who's obviously spent a lot of time working on Chinese behavior in the, the region and dispel some of the narratives here uh, about central motivations being um, uh, about exercising some sort of nebulous influence or, or debt trap. And the next thing I wanted to ask was from the Caribbean countries' perspectives, how well equipped would you say that individual governments in the Caribbean are to, to deal with these Chinese infrastructure offerings and, and loans? Uh, I imagine that as we've seen with Africa, China will have an individual strategy for each Caribbean country uh, and the Caribbean as a whole. Do Caribbean countries have a, a China strategy in turn? I mean, Caribbean countries don't even have a UK strategy, right? And we're dealing for the UK for hundreds of years. Um, there's a lack of capacity in Caribbean governments. And, you know, when I say government, I do mean general public sector. So the Ministry of Finance, Ministry of Foreign Affairs, Ministry of Trade, they all lack capacity in various ways to do many things. So I don't think they have a China strategy, but again, that's not odd because they don't have any big strategy, in my opinion, to any large player, even players, as I said, that have been dealing with for centuries. Uh, I think it will take a while to have a China strategy. But again, to me, a strategy itself, even if they had one, would not be sufficient because you can design a strategy, but you still don't have anyone to implement a strategy, which is me a bigger problem. So, you know, let's say you have a room with the prime minister and some senior consultants, maybe some international persons and some different, you know, policy experts, and you design something that only goes so far because there's no one working day to day to implement that same thing. So that's still the capacity constraint as well. So you see that with, again, all the great powers, all the great players in Caribbean, even between Caribbean countries, there's not very good uh, strategies as well. I'm pretty sure you guys know about the CARICOM or the Caribbean Community Grouping. It's not well-defined. It's not well-actioned. There's limitations even on that. 
And it's, I, I guess it should not be that surprising given that Barbados has about 290,000 people. I mean, it's only so much you can do if you have that population constraint. Yeah, that's really interesting to hear. And I guess I wanted to move on next to to look at things from a, a bit more of a UK perspective. So recently we've seen one of the conservative leadership candidates, Liz Truss, put a really big emphasis on working with Commonwealth countries as partners. And we've also seen changes made to the development and financing arm of the CDC. So I just wanted to ask whether you think that UK efforts would be best focused at capacity building or what would the best way for UK to engage Commonwealth and Caribbean countries such as Barbados be? I think the effective way we first and foremost be serious. I don't think most of the UK's foreign policy in the Caribbean is actually serious. It's, to me, a lot of time is performance art. You say things, you gesture towards things, but that's not actual policy. And you can you can you say you're doing a new policy, but there are older policies that are still not completed. There's some that aren't even started. There's some that were just, you know, made how to communicate. This is a communication from 2020, 21, for example. I mean, you know, nothing is that has really come true and there's not much actual money and allocations or resources put towards even those projects. Um, even, for example, um, Foreign Secretary Trust, when she was talking about the engagement, again, this is a new foreign secretary, understandably, but the other ones were saying the same things going back many years and still nothing has really happened, I think. So I think one part, one problem is that I am not sure there is much view of credibility when it comes to the UK and the Caribbean, which is it's still a problem. And any kind of engagement developmental wise or financial wise or economic wise, you have to start from the bedrock of building that diplomatic space once again, which I think has been eroded over time. And again, when last uh, 2020, when the essentially what appears to be the UK government pushed on this China narrative um, on Barbados and the Caribbean, that caused even more erosion because that lack of seriousness when it comes to Caribbean is not going to be easily forgotten. So just from the bedrock, you have to be more credible, which is not easy to do. Understandably, there are different domestic constraints in the UK when it comes to overseas financing or overseas projects. Okay, we, 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 uh, understandable. But that really has to be part, part one. And then part two, you know, financing isn't enough. I think I you kind of hint at this point. Capacity building is a lot more important. However, capacity building is harder because you can't just give money and walk away. In capacity building, you have to do a lot of training, you have to do long term, you know, um, institutional construction. But the receiving country is not a passive player in that activity. They have to be willing to put in the hard work. I'm not convinced as yet that a lot of Caribbean countries are willing to put in the hard work to themselves develop that capacity constraint. I think too often times people think about the Caribbean or just small countries in general as black box as black boxes or or even as toys where you can action towards something. I don't think an action towards building capacity it has to be the Caribbean countries trying themselves very hard to build capacity. But I think that is what has waned, and I'm not sure uh, much foreign policy help can assist that uh, problem. But it definitely will be a correct direction to build capacity, but it has a very vague term that we have to drill down to what that would really mean on a day-to-day level. That's where the, 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 um, the real work happens. 
And to, to move on to a, um, a final line of questioning and the question of Taiwan, which is, has been in the, the, the news heavily this week for, for obvious reasons. Um, but the, the question of engagement and diplomatic ties with Taiwan is always a complex one. And several countries in the Caribbean and in Central America, in fact, still recognize Taiwan as a sovereign state. Um, but some, such as St. Kitts, are now um, sort of heavily embedded as members of the, the Belt and Road Initiative. So, so why is this Taiwan issue still so live and, and relevant in the Caribbean, do you think? A few reasons. It's relevant from a geopolitics perspective because the UK and America brings it up all the time. That's, that's, one, that's one aspect of it. Uh, in the Caribbean, the countries who are not Taiwan allies don't discuss this issue at all. Uh, that's one thing to keep in mind. However, I do not think that Taiwan will have any allies in the Caribbean in five years or even sooner. Not because Taiwan is bad at diplomacy. I think Taiwan is actually excellent at diplomacy. It's not because China is going to push and persuade or coerce and compel. I think that's not the game. I think it's a matter of the realities in those domestic countries, those, those um, countries domestically will realize that the opportunity cost of not dealing with China directly is going to get too great to be sustainable. For example, he, uh, close by the Caribbean, so the Caribbean in the Caribbean group, there are like five of the 14 Taiwan allies are in the Caribbean. So a fairly high number. So it's quite substantial. However, close by to Panama, for example, Panama made the switch from Taiwan to uh, China in 2017. And they tried before. They didn't try that year. They tried years before, but Beijing said, no, we don't want to accept the switch at that time because at that time, uh, Xi Jinping and Manjo, they had this you know, informal truce when it comes to ally adaptation. And if Beijing had made a switch to um, with Taiwan with Panama, it would cause some you know tensions in the KMT and Taiwan at time and upset that truce. But since uh, Taiwan came into power, of course, then that kind of truce was no longer there. KMT split for DPP, and we have now Panama was allowed essentially to go to Beijing. So it's not simply Beijing trying to pull. The countries are going to push the way there as well. And because China was not that active in the Caribbean, say, 20 years ago, the opportunity cost between Taiwan and China was lower. Then as the years go on and as the as China becomes more player in the world and therefore in the Americas, the opportunity cost will get to a point where it's, you, know, you can see economics play out quite, quite easily. So... For that very, you could say, boring mechanical reason, I don't think Taiwan would have any allies in the Caribbean within five years. Um, this is important, I think, because the U.S. in particular has a very strong promotion strategy, if you call it that way, of Taiwan and Caribbean. So the U.S.'s diplomacy in the Caribbean also intertwined with Taiwan's diplomacy in the Caribbean. I think that is a losing strategy. And I think perhaps they will have to change that before it's too late. Uh, on the UK side, I'm not too sure exactly what the UK's attitude towards Taiwan and the Caribbean is, but I suspect it's probably closer to US than what it should be. And that perhaps has to be adjusted uh, beforehand also. 
Yeah, it's fascinating, those combined forces um, of the the gradual kind of Chinese push, um, sort of forcing countries away from recognizing Taiwan, as we've sort of seen in the the Pacific as well, Um, but also those Caribbean countries uh, gradually pulling away um, from the island in, in various different ways. And just to round off, Rashid, uh, I think you said before that the Caribbean has um, been on the end of the, the the worst of the critiques of the Belt and Road Initiative. Could you maybe expand on what you mean by this um, as a sort of summary issue for this podcast? So I think the BRA, I guess, narratives are, to me, surprising because they're surprising in a way that shouldn't be if you have to have nuance in a conversation. So, for example, you would discuss the BRA as this strategic program where if anyone really peers onto it, it's not at all a big strategy. It's more of a, like a branding concept. But that's not a bad thing, right? When you branding is important to getting goods to the market, to getting understanding. It's like a famous thing in management theory, supposed to call it that way, where you said, you know, advertising is deciding, you know, marketing is deciding what to say about myself. Advertising is saying about yourself all the time, all time. And branding is what other people say about you. So you do need branding. It's very important for, you know, your product, your, your service in China, brand China, essentially. So it's good. But to then elevate that to some macro idea, it's a bit ingenuous. And when you then have to go and see each part, part by part, you treat the actions of China towards countries as, you know, a black box thinking. In reality, these countries have their own priorities, often their own interests, sometimes not always their own values, and those have to play a part as well. And then there is this, um, again, even if around, I guess, experts in some ways, if you want to call them experts, they have China as one thing. China is all the things, it's like a Rorschach test, right? It's all the things I want to input on China, that is China. But that doesn't make for policy analysis. You can't treat, for example, the, although you might want to, for narrative reasons, treat the exact um, product positioning of Huawei and the same thing as Czech. This not really the same thing in day-to-day life. Or for example, the let's say the interest of a particular SOE and some new policy from the state council. Again, there are tenuous connections. There are somehow strong ones also. But day-to-day in activities is not the right thing. So BRI has become this, you know, this buzzword thing across many dimensions where it almost makes policy stupid, where you, you prefer to, you know, retreat into this ideal narrative instead of going forward into the world and see what is happening. And you set upon the lo- um, logistical reasons for getting things done for your own interests. So even if the UK has specific interests, as it should, and it does, it's not enough to just use these narrative ideas to propel the interests you have to put in the work. But again, there's only a few things to say the work being put in. The basic example, when you speak to Chinese embassy people in the Caribbean versus when you speak to UK or US embassy people in the Caribbean, they have a very different understanding of the Caribbean and of what they're doing. And I think that shouldn't be the case. I, say, I don't think the Chinese should have a better understanding of the Caribbean um, problems than the UK does. But it seems to me that is the case. I'm not sure what happened um, in the UK foreign office that, that happened that way. 
yeah, I think it would be hard to to disagree that um, the granular analysis and um, the country company breakdowns um, that, that you're engaged with uh, and speak speak about are, are difficult to come by, but but so crucial um, to analysing Chinese activity across the Belt and Road um, with with the detail and balance that it requires. So f- from us, keep up the great work that you're doing. Um, and just to finish off, Rashid, where where can we direct people to to track you down and and to stay on top of your work moving forward. So you can find me on my podcast, China in the Americas. I actually did a rebranding a few months ago. So not only Caribbean, but all the Americas and China. Uh, right now I'm doing a big financial series on these more granular financial concepts. So China in the Americas, everywhere you find podcasts. Okay, brilliant. Um, well, it sounds like you're going to continue to be a very busy man in the the coming months. Uh, Rashid Griffith, thank you very much for appearing on the China Research Group podcast today. Thank you for having me.